Thank you, Tim, for that prayer of supplication, and thank you all for being here today and allowing me the privilege to bring God's Word to you here in this Christmas season as we're preparing our hearts to celebrate the birth of our Savior. I'll direct your attention back to the Gospel of Luke where we're walking through this wonderful Gospel given to us by Luke, uh, one known to be a historian, uh, one for details as we see in his recollection of the ministry, the life and ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As we think about Christmas, I was reflecting upon some of my Christmas memories from years gone by. I have so many wonderful uh, memories growing up uh, uh, as a, a, a lad on the farm. And one particular Christmas Eve stands out in my mind. I remember I was about nine or ten years old, and it was about that time that God's dealing with my heart. Uh, beginning to make things of the scriptures more important to me and questions begin to surface and I remember that Christmas Eve um, that uh, I found myself being compelled just to, to like I said we're, we're on a farm and, and I felt the Lord just drawing me to go down to our stable um, we, we had an old log building that served as a stable for our farm and it was about two, three hundred yards from the house. It was off in the park by itself. And um, this was getting on toward dusk. Uh, and my dad and my older brother and I had just done chores and, and uh, including putting the cows in the stable and milking them and getting them ready for the evening. And, and I just felt just like a yearning to just go down to the stable because a couple of days earlier I'd been in one of the Christmas pageants at church. I was never elected to be Joseph. I was never so astute. I was usually the guy that wore the bathrobe with a towel over my head, carrying a rod, tending sheep. But that's okay. Um, but, but that story just seemed to impact my life that year in a way that maybe not before. And, and I was really pondering and wondering. And I, so I just thought, well, I'll go down to the stable and check this thing out. And so, as I was thinking about the Christmas story, uh, I went into the stable, had a, a loft where we kept the hay above, and then underneath there was a feed room where we had this hay and feed, and then the trough that ran the uh, whole width of the stable that separated the feed room from the stalls where the cows were, where we milked them and that type of thing. The cows were, were there, um, and um, I still remember the two milk cows. We, we were very attached to our animals. And so there was a Star, because she was born with a star on her forehead. And then Beck, was short for Rebecca. And so anyway, they were there, you know, lazily grazing or, or chewing on some of the hay that we had put in the trough for them to eat. Uh, and they were kind of bedding down for the evening or settling in for the evening. And I was standing there as a, as a nine or ten year old boy, standing there in the feed room, looking at the trough. I was drawn to that trough that evening as the sun was going down and it was getting dark and the stable, like all stables, smelly and cold and there were animal sounds all around. The cows you know, every once in a while would low and then I would hear uh, a stray chicken that had found a nest there in the loft or in, you know, laying their eggs or whatever. And, and so it was just me and the animals in that stable and that setting and I just remember being mesmerized by that trough and thinking, wow, God's son, God's son was born thousands of years ago and his mama wrapped him up in cloth and laid him in a feeding trough. How, how could that be? 
And my mind was just racing because it was right there in front of me. What, what a place for the king of kings to begin his journey here on earth, the son of God. And I remember looking up through the one window that was there in the stable. Like I said, it was getting towards dusk. And I could see the evening star breaking on the horizon. And that Christmas scene just came back to my life and to my mind. And I pondered that. What a wondrous, magnificent story that God unfolds for us here. And Luke captures with such vivid detail for us to enjoy year after year after year as we consider the circumstances that surrounded that first Christmas. And so I invite you to consider how marvelous the events are described in the scriptures of that first Christmas. And the first thing I want us to focus on as we look in chapter 2, as Tim has already indicated, a very familiar Christmas story. How many times have churches read this or reenacted it or children, you know, uh, done plays with it or families sat around at Christmas and read this story? But, but Luke unfolds it. And so I want us to first, as we look at the Christmas story given to us so, so powerfully and accurately by Luke, I want us to look at the Messiah's miraculous incarnation. Because really, the, the, the coming into the world of the second person of the Holy Trinity, Jesus Christ, is truly a miraculous thing that God has done. And, and, and it should capture the, the, the imagination and the, the awe of every human being, especially those who call Jesus Lord. Listen, God had a plan. I, I shared this with you as I laid the background for, for the Gospel of Luke. God has always had a plan that goes back to the dawning of history. It goes back to the fall, that tragic fall of man and woman in rebellion and disobedience to God. The fall in the garden, even in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5, when God is pronouncing the curse upon the serpent, upon Satan. And he makes it clear that a part of, this, of that glorious plan to redeem mankind from the awful eternal penalty of sin involved God placed an enmity between the, the, the woman and the serpent, the woman and the, the, the devil, mankind and the devil. And God made it clear that, and we get our first glimpse of what we know as the virgin birth when God said the seed of woman, which implies this had to be a virgin birth. Because it wasn't the seed of man. But, but he says, and the seed of woman will, will talking to Satan, will bruise your heel. It will be a fatal blow to you, Satan. Of course, all through his life, you will bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. And so the plan begins to unfold. We see God unfolding this wonderful redemptive plan all through the history of the Old Testament. Through, through magnificent biblical characters like Noah. And then into Abraham, Father Abraham, if you will, and the descendants of Abraham, who became themselves a great nation in fulfillment of the prophecy or the promise that God had given in the covenant to Abraham. But we saw God continuing generation after generation, century after century. God is unfolding this redemptive plan through his faithful servants. And, and, and King David and, and in the prophet Daniel, the prophet Isaiah, as our preaching team has been preaching, even Isaiah captured the, the, the prophetic vision of this coming Messiah. When he says, uh, when Isaiah is saying, or God is saying through Isaiah to King Ahaz, that, that this will be a sign. This will be a sign. The virgin will give birth to a child. The virgin will give birth to a child. This, this will be a sign. Historically to, to Ahaz, but prophetically to the world. 
And we see that unfolding here in this marvelous, miraculous incarnation. And of course, we saw in Matthew's version of the Christmas story, if you will, in chapter 1, where the angel came to Joseph in that dream. Because Joseph was disturbed because the woman of his dream, his love, Mary, he was betrothed, he was engaged to her, yet she was pregnant. And being a just and a righteous man, he was considering what he should do. And then in his dream, the angel came to him. This is not a figment of Joseph's mind like a typical dream that we would have. This was an actual appearance of an angel in reality to him while he slept. And the angel shared a portion of this divine, wonderful plan and how it impacted Mary and how it impacted Joseph and certainly involved the child that she would bear. And there in verse 20 it says, But when he thought about these things, talking of Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then we saw, as we opened up chapter 1 of Luke, Luke's gospel, how God is unveiling this, plan, this, this wonderful redemptive plan. He's already sent an angel to encounter that devout priest by the name of Zacharias and, 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 and allowed Zacharias to see how they were a part of the plan in that he and his, his aged wife, they were both elderly, we're going to have a, a, a child of their own who would be John the Baptist. And so God is unveiling the plan. It's, it's starting to happen. But listen, it didn't end there because we saw in chapter 1 of verse 34 that God sent angel Gabriel to a young lady. She was probably about 13, 14 years old, betrothed to Joseph. Her name was Mary. She was a virgin. And the angel came to Mary and said, in essence, Mary, you're going to have a baby. And not only a baby, but this is going to be a, a, a wonderful child. This, this is child. Of, this will be the son of the highest, the son of God. And Mary reasonably asked in verse 34 of chapter 1, she said, how can this be? Since I do not know a man. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Oh my goodness. What, what knowledge, what information, what revelation for any person to try to comprehend, much less a young woman, early teens. And yet we come to understand and appreciate what a special woman, young lady that Mary actually is. And so now we see the stage is being set. God is sovereignly setting the stage as we look at chapter 2. Remember, everything is happening because Jehovah God, Yahweh, the God of all creation, the God who is sovereign above all of, of, of humanity and all of creation, the all-powerful, eternal, all-knowing, ever-present and, and, and always constant, never-changing God sets into motion in verse 1 of chapter 2. Luke says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, now, I don't know how much Roman history you know, but Caesar Augustus is actually a man by the name of Gaius Octavius, who was actually a, I have to get this right, a, a, a grand-nephew of Julius Caesar. But Julius Caesar liked him and he adopted him, so he became the stepson of Julius Caesar. Of course, Julius Caesar was assassinated, and so now Octavius uh, or Gaius Octavius is rising to power. 
He'll be one of the most powerful Roman emperors. He will solidify and unite the Roman Empire like no one else has. And he's rising to power. And when, he's, when he is being uh, um, sanctioned, if you will, by the Roman Senate, they give him the name of Caesar, a title rather, the title of Caesar, Augustus, which means revered emperor. He's the most powerful man. Augustus suggests that he's almost a god to be revered, almost worshipped. And so he's the most powerful man in the civilized world. And hence he gives a decree that all the world should be registered or there should be a census. And Luke is capturing that. And he's wanting his readers, primarily Gentiles by the way, to understand that the timing of, the, of, of this great miracle of the birth of the Messiah occurred at a very pinpointed historical time. Most scholars say that sometime probably between 4 and 6 B.C. We're talking about these events occurring. While Luke, being the, the detailed historian that he is, goes on in verse 2 to tell us the census first took place while Quirinius was ruling or governing Syria. So not only do we know the Roman emperor who was in place, but we also know the very governor of the region of Syria so you can pinpoint when this was all taking place. So we see that the timing is developing. Listen, folks, God, in his infinite wisdom, has already not only told us the exact time, but he's also telling us the exact location of this wonderful event. Because we know that the prophet Micah tells us in, in his great prophecy that the child, this Messiah, the coming promised one, would be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, Ephratah. Smallest among the towns in the region of Judah, out of him, out of that tribe, out of that region would come the very one who would be the ruler of the world. And so we see that this, this has all occurred according to God's plan. And isn't it interesting because as we looked at chapter 1 of Luke's gospel, Mary and Joseph were situated in Nazareth, in the, in the region of Galilee. And yet we know that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. So how is it possible then that, that, that we're going to get Joseph and his betrothed wife, who by this point is very pregnant, to Bethlehem? Well, God just puts it in the heart of a Roman emperor who has the power and the authority to say, there's going to be a census and all the people will go back to their hometowns to be registered. And so look at verse 3. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. It just so happened. It says in verse 4 that Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David. This is the home place of King David. This is where David was born. To the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and the lineage of David. Now that's, that, that, that's a nice thing. You're saying, oh yeah, they made the trip to Bethlehem, but, but have you really thought about the logistics of what is happening here? How, how did, I mean, I have a deep appreciation for Joseph. I have a greater appreciation for Mary. She was quite the young lady because here she is in her last weeks of pregnancy, if you will. And she's going to travel from, from Nazareth to, to Bethlehem. Folks, this is a journey of about 70 miles. 
I was just curious. And so, and not only just 70 miles, it would be different if it was nice, smooth, you know, four-lane highway, and you're traveling in a cruiser or something like that. But, but we're talking about 70 miles over much of the mountainous terrain of Judea. And she's not riding in a Cadillac, she's riding on the back of a donkey if, if, or a walking. Very, very pregnant. I, I couldn't, I had to really kind of visualize. I'm a visual person, so I got my, my, my Google Maps out and I'm searching for a town that, you know, with mountainous terrain. So go to, go to Hillsville, Virginia. Y'all been up there, right there where the parkway is. And, and it's 72 miles from Winston-Salem to Hillsville, Virginia. So ladies, just imagine being nine months pregnant, riding on the back of a donkey, going from Winston-Salem up to Hillsville, up and down the hills and around the curves. And so, but yet God has ordained that this is going to happen. This is, this is God sovereignly setting the stage for his son's arrival. And we know from scripture, this is the exact time Everything is happening exactly according to the time that God has set. Because in verse 6 of chapter 2 it says, So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. Just on time. Jesus wasn't born in route. He wasn't born early. He was born exactly where God wanted him to be born. He was born exactly when God wanted him to be born. Paul picked up on this. In Galatians, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, listen to how Paul describes it in verse 4. He says, but when the fullness of time, and in the Greek that expression is oftentimes used of a woman who is very pregnant, and the moment that she goes into labor, labor and, and is delivering the baby, it's like time is pregnant and it's this event comes forth. Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Born of a woman, born under the law. God is awesome. Amen? And, 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 and listen, this is just according to God's terrestrial timetable and his celestial timetable. Because up in heaven, Jesus is sent down here to be born as a human uh, and, 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 you know, and, and take on flesh. Listen to how John, in his gospel, John doesn't give the Christmas story, but he does give us some, some, some really deep insights as to the origin of, of Christ. Not that he has a beginning, but he says in verse 14 of chapter 1 of John, he says, and the word, speaking of Jesus, the eternal great I am, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John said there was a point of time, even in heaven, where God sent his son. And he took on flesh. He became human. Hence the incarnation. So we see God sovereignly setting the stage for his son's arrival. But then we also see that the Lord Jesus makes an unimpressive entrance into the world. Like I was you know, flabbergasted when standing there in that old stinky cold stable thinking as I looked at that feeding trough with the hay and the cows and, and chickens around and I was thinking, my Lord was born in something like this? And it made a deep impression upon me. Look at the humble circumstances surrounding this Savior's birth given to us in verse 7. And she brought forth, speaking of Mary, her firstborn son, Contrary to some of the teachings of the Catholic Church, Mary did not remain a perpetual virgin. We know that as the scriptures tell us in the, in the Gospels that she had, she had other sons. She had daughters. 
But this was her firstborn. And wrapped him in swaddling clothes. I've always thought that those were holy garb. But I kind of find out in researching that that that's just typical. Any, any thoughtful mother, even peasant mothers, would wrap their babies in swaddling clothes. Just, just rags. Just wrap them, bind them up. I know Native Americans did that and stick them in a papoose and go on. <laughs> and supposedly by wrapping that child, that very young infant, and, and wrapping their body tightly, it would help to keep them from scratching their face as children are with their nails and all, scarring up the skin and that type of thing. It was supposedly help to, to keep their limbs straight so that they wouldn't be you know, growing up with crooked limbs. And, and it also kept them warm. So there were, there were practical purposes. It's not a spiritual thing. Mary was just an average mother that was doing what average mothers did. She was wrapping her firstborn baby in swaddling clothes. But what she was doing next was not so usual. Wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. There's a lot you could say about that because oftentimes we go searching through the scriptures and say, you know, where is it? Where is it that says Jesus was born in a stable? Folks, I don't think it's not in the word of God. You won't find it talking about the stable, but, but by deduction you can say that if he was put in a feeding trough, then obviously that was a place. When it says there was no room for them in the end, it doesn't imply that he was turned away from something like you know, Embassy Suites or, or some nice hotel. Uh, uh, An uh, inn in those days was simply a place that travelers stayed. It could be, it could be a, a lean-to, a shelter, and people stay under there and bed down, and, and there was a place for the animals. It could be a campground for, for some of the pilgrims going through. So when it says that there was no room for them in the inn, it's not implying that they didn't get a bedroom. It simply says there was not even place in that place of gathering. And the only other place that they could go, and here he is, the Son of God, and he was being introduced into the world in such an absolutely humble way. And could I remind you though, could I remind you though, lest you fall into the temptation of thinking that this is when Jesus came into being. I mean, all of us came into being when we were born, okay? So don't feel, unless you're a hatch, everybody had a beginning, okay? But, but, but understand that when you go back to the Gospel of John and you look in chapter 1, John says of Jesus, speaking of him as the word, he says, in the beginning, before there was a heaven, before there was an earth, before there was a solar system, before there was anything, in, in the beginning was the word. That's Jesus, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And the word was with God and the word was God. John couldn't put it any plainer. Jesus did not come into being 2,000 years ago in a stable or gathering place for animals outside of the town of Bethlehem because he has always been. And listen to what verse 3 says. John says, And all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Wow. Paul picks up on that in a marvelous passage to help us understand that the birth of Jesus, as we know it, given to us in Luke, was not the beginning of Jesus. Because listen to what, John, what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 1, listen how Paul describes it beginning in verse 15. He says, he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the Christ. Hey, that's our Lord. He was born, but that was not his beginning. Because he is the self-existent Yahweh, the Alpha and the Omega. Just as his death and his burial was not his end, there is no end. And so here's his humble entrance into the world. But it's so striking to see the general, the world's general lack of interest then and now. Why John tells us in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 10, speaking of Jesus coming into the world, he says, He was in the world, and the world was, not, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. There was no welcoming party. There was no mayor of Bethlehem standing there with a gold key to the city. There was no band playing and welcoming the Son of God into the world. There he was. Wrapped in swaddling clothes, virtually unnoticed, unrecognized, and the world went on by. There was no delegation from Rome. There were no priests coming in from Jerusalem. Mary, Joseph, and a lone little baby boy in a dark, cold animal shelter. Hey, listen. If that causes you to chill a little bit, think about the vast majority of the citizens of the world in which we live today. Billions of people who will give no or little thought to the birth of Jesus Christ or his earthly ministry or his atoning death on the cross or his bodily resurrection from the grave or salvation. Even at Christmas. The vast majority of the population of the world will go on as if nothing has ever occurred. There's no significance to this time other than a time to get off work or out of school to have parties and to get gifts and go on and have singing and on go on. Oh listen, the Messiah's miraculous incarnation was nonetheless a miracle, a powerful, a magnificent. Nobody has ever changed the world and humanity than that little baby born in Bethlehem to a virgin who was wrapped in swaddling clothes. Now, in stark contrast to the world's indifference, <laughs> God had his own party plan, if I can be so bold. Because as we read later, uh, uh, further, you'll see that in addition to the Messiah's miraculous incarnation, I want you to focus your attention upon what I call the angel's glorious declaration. Angels have a key part to play in God's wonderful plan. We've already seen Gabriel make entrances and make announcements and, 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 and do that. And, and, and now we look at verse 8 of chapter 2. It says, now there were in the same region or country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, 
And, and might I just inject that when the scriptures talks about the glory of the Lord, might you remember that when God manifested his glory in the Old Testament, when God came down upon Mount Sinai to, to discuss things with, with, uh, with uh, Moses, my goodness, the glory of God was so brilliant that God had to hide Moses in the cleft of the rock and only let him look at the backside of him. And even after that, Moses glowed like a light bulb. He had to put a veil over his face because he had simply glimpsed at the backside of the glory of God. It was understood throughout the Old Testament that if you were in the presence of the glory of God, you'd die. You could not stand it. We know that the glory of God came down upon that that portable worship place called the tabernacle that the children of Israel dragged with them all the way through the wilderness. We know that the glory of God filled that dwelling place. And we know that the glory of God guided the Israelites through the wilderness at night as a blazing pillar of fire. We know that the glory of God in, in, in Chronicles when Saul, uh, Solomon was building the temple of God and they were dedicated to the temple, that the glory of God filled that temple. It was not a small thing. Just imagine yourself being out there on a, on a lonely hillside with a bunch of sheep and a few other shepherds. And it's dark as all get out. There are no street lights. Nobody had a lamp, a, a flashlight. They're sitting around a dying camp light. It's getting dark. And they're ready to bed down. And poof, out of nowhere, here's a man standing there. And they know he's not an ordinary man because all of a sudden the whole area is filled with the brilliance of the glory of God. And it says that the shepherds were so afraid. Guess what? Charlie would be so afraid. <laughs> I'd say, what, whoa, this is not an ordinary night. Boys, hold on to your hats. <laughs> wow. And the heavenly messenger introduced a preview of the gospel right there. Because he declares the good news of the, of, of the Messiah's arrival. When I was introducing the Gospel of Luke, I, I went back into the, the book of Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets. And Mal God left the nation of Israel with a word of hope in a time of spiritual darkness before he became silent for 400 years. The last word that God gave there in chapter 4 of Malachi, verse, four, uh, verse 2, he says, but to you, talking to the faithful, but to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings and you shall go out and grow like fat, uh, grow fat like calf, uh, like stall fed calves. In other words, you'll be happy. He says there is going to come the one who is the son of righteousness. God declares the good news. That's what the angel is doing there. As we go back to chapter 2 of Luke and, that, and we pick up with the angel scene there. And the angel said to them, do not be afraid. This is a common thing for angels. They said to Zacharias, said to Mary, you know, wherever they showed up, they had to kind of calm people down. Don't, don't be afraid. I'm not here to cut your head off. I'm not here to bring judgment upon you. You've got good news. Do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news or good tidings of great joy. Where have we heard that before? Good news. Good news. Ha! That sounds strangely like the, the Greek version of the word we know as the, as, as the good news, the gospel. The gospel is good news, ladies and gentlemen. The gospel is good news to lost sinners when the holy God says, yes, you are guilty. You have sinned. Yes, you deserve death eternally in, in, in hell where you'll be judged in, in damnation. Yes, you are guilty, but God says, I love you. And I have a plan to redeem you from the penalty of your sin. 
The angel was in essence saying, look, I've got good news for you fellows. I believe from that, the implication is these shepherds, and we'll talk about them just a little bit, but I believe there was a, these were men of faith. I believe there were men that, that, that believed in God. I believe there were men who, though not learned in, 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 in the things of, of Judaism, I believe that they believed what the prophets said, that there was coming a Messiah. I believe deep in their hearts, they were longing for that day when God would send His promised Messiah. He said, do not be afraid, for behold, I, give, I bring to you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Did it say all Jews? Did it say all of the people living in Bethlehem or Jerusalem? No. The good news, the gospel is to everybody. For God so loved what? The world. Every people group of all nations and tribes. And then he goes on with the details because he not only does he declare the good news of the gospel, but in these verses, such as in verse 11, he describes, he explains the good news that the Messiah is also their Savior. Look at verse 11. For there is born to you this day, this night, in the city of David, Bethlehem, right over the hill, boys, a Savior, a Savior, a Savior, who is Christ, Messiah, the promised one. Isn't that similar to what the, the angel had already told Joseph in chapter 1 of Matthew? When he was telling Joseph, hey, look, Joseph, don't worry, because this child that Mary's carrying, listen, she is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yahshua. For he will save his people from the Romans. No, he will save his people from the Syrians, no. He will save his people from the Egyptians, no. He will save his people from their sins. He is Savior of the world. Which is consistent even with the Old Testament rendition of God in Deuteronomy chapter 20. In Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 4, listen to how it describes God. For the Lord your God is he who, gives with you, who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. God is always in the business of saving his people and it plays out right here. Let's move on because we see the heavenly messenger introduces a preview of the gospel. But also God reinforces the angel's incredible message to the shepherds as if they needed any reinforcement. Remember earlier we talked about how God is so gracious to confirm when he tells people something. He told Mary she's going to have a baby because the Holy Spirit was going to overshadow her even though she was a virgin. And she's asking, how could this be? And God says, oh, oh the angel says, oh, and by the way, remember your old cousin Elizabeth who's way up in age, far, far, far beyond childbearing age. She's pregnant. <laughs> Six months, go. And she went and she saw her. Listen, God doesn't leave us dangling and hanging. He's a gracious God to give us confirmation of what he's saying. And listen, God, as if the angel showing up in the glory was not enough. As we look further, and I love this part in verse 13. And suddenly, you know how God works? He works suddenly. Breaks into history. He doesn't always announce that he's coming. He doesn't always announce that he's going to do something. He just, he's there. Listen, when Jesus comes again to rapture the church, ladies and gentlemen, he's not going to send out notices. It won't be on CNN or, or Fox News for two weeks and telling everybody to give it. Listen, the, the scripture says, in the twinkling of an eye, suddenly Christ will appear in the clouds and those who are his will be caught up to join him. Praise God. And suddenly the scripture says, 
there was with the angel a multitude. That's a military term. If you're up against a multitude of troops, you better be trying to make some kind of a peace treaty or find some way to negotiate because you're talking about a whole lot of soldiers. And it says, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. I knew these shepherds had to have good hearts because they'd all die with a heart attack by, by this point. Yeah, that scene right there that we see that Luke is, and Luke is into details. He's interviewed these shepherds or people that knew them and he's getting all the details down. He's not missing anything because he wants his Gentile readers and everybody else that would read the gospel of Luke to get every detail of what was going on. And he describes this scene of a multitude of heavenly hosts suddenly appeared. I don't know if they were standing on the ground around this angel, the angel, or they were suspended in air. It doesn't matter. The fact is they're there with the glory of God and they're praising God. You know what that's reminiscent of? I think about in Revelation when God called, caught John up in that great revelation. He's there in the throne room of God. He's in heaven. And then listen to how John describes it in this great revelation in, in Revelation chapter 5 verse 11. He says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Look, I was never good in math. One person said that's probably about 100 million angels. And Luke says, hey boys, there was a multitude of them boys suspended in air, glowing with the glory of God. And they were praising Almighty Yahweh, Jehovah, Elohim, El Elyon. Why? Because on earth there would be peace and goodwill toward man. For the first time, ladies and gentlemen, since Genesis 3.5, when the curse of sin was settling upon humanity for what appeared to be eternity, God says, I am providing a way where there will be peace between holy God and sinful man. And it's unfolding right over there in a stable in the little town of Bethlehem. Listen, we can take our drives at night at Christmas, and I do occasionally like to drive around, and see how people waste their electricity by having all these wonderful... I mean, I, hey, look, if you got a lot of outdoor decorations, God bless you. I didn't get around to it today, this year. But, but I love to see all the Christmas lights. And Tanglewood and all of that, you just drive for miles and miles and all these brilliant displays of light. I love it, I love it. But listen to all of that. Man's best effort to decorate pales in comparison to the display that God unfolded for those humble shepherds outside the town of Bethlehem. I need, I need to move along because not only does Luke help us to see the miraculous incarnation of Jesus and the, and the angel's glorious declaration, but consider also, as we wrap it up, the shepherds' joyous celebration. What was the reaction of these shepherds? Verse 15. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste. As soon as they could get the sheep taken care of, they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Hey, listen, I submit to you, there, weren't, there may have been other babies born in Bethlehem that night. I can, I can accept that. But what are the chances of finding a baby Wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a feeding trough, just like 
the angels said. Listen, shepherds were not high-class citizens in Jewish society. In fact, one commentator said they were pretty the, they were the lowest of the caste system, if you will. If you're a shepherd, you're on down there. In that culture, they were regarded to be at the bottom of the Jewish social ladder. They, they were religiously considered to be unfit and unclean because of the nature of their work. Hey, listen, even legally, they were considered to be unreliable. You didn't take, you didn't take the word of a shepherd in, in court as a witness. They're shepherds. They lie all the time. Hey, you know, you know what dawned on me as I was looking at that and the, the description of the average shepherd of that day? I think, wait a minute, wait a minute, time out, time out. Have you guys forgotten Moses was a shepherd? Duh. <laughs> King David was a shepherd. Obviously, shepherds have gone downhill a long way over the period of time. But these shepherds, I believe, as I indicated before, I believe these were men who had faith in God. They believed what the angel said. They said, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that God has told us. And they made haste. My uncle Stanton farmed with my dad. Loved him to death. A good Christian man. But unlike my dad, my dad had the patience of Job. My uncle Stanton, he just didn't have a lot of patience. So if he said, now run across the woods and go down there to the tool shed and get a uh, three-quarter inch boxed-in wrench and get it back here so he can fix his tractor, you didn't just start off kind of walking. Because he used the expression, make haste. And if he said make haste, you better be putting some tracks down. Going. So, so the angels, the, the shepherds, it says, they came with haste and found the, the family, Mary and Joseph, and the babe. In verse 17, now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. And in verse 20, and then the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told them. Wow. You know, it's interesting because they told a lot of people and it says a lot of people marveled. But you know, a lot of those people that marveled at what the shepherds said didn't even bother going to see the baby. They didn't even invest in trying to find out who he really was. Didn't say anything about these people that marveled him coming to faith and choosing to follow him. Just simply says they marveled him. But don't forget that was Jesus is here on the earth and he's working these great miracles of, of, of healings and casting out demons and feeding thousands of people. Listen, many people, multitudes of people marveled at how he taught, what he did. But when it came down to truly following him, very few. Isn't that interesting? Every Christmas, people have the opportunity to hear the Bible's rendition of the first Christmas. They're presented with the opportunity to accept Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as their Savior and Lord, to follow Him. Isn't that amazing? Even in civilized times like we're living in. And each person, given the opportunity to decide for themselves. I can't decide for you, you can't decide for me. But every person, having heard, has a responsibility to choose to decide whether they're going to follow Jesus or not. And it's amazing, no, it's sad, at the multitudes of people who marvel but never follow. Oh, that's a great story. That's an interesting story. Oh, I believe Jesus was really a fantastic guy. But they never call him Lord. 
And hence in Luke 6, 46, the Lord Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say to do? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you choose not to do what I said when I said, If any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And very few people follow Jesus every day. I promise you that. You know that. So, not only are the, are the shepherds in the joyous celebration worshiping God, but I believe they are making a choice at this point. And it, and it fulfills Scripture. Because in Isaiah 61, the prophet Isaiah talked about the Messiah, and it talked about the Messiah coming to those who are the downtrodden. Those who were in prison. Those who were the outcast. Those are the ones that usually have a room for Jesus in their heart. Encountering their Christ transformed their lives. Listen, these unsocially fit, religious, outcast, low-life shepherds became the first evangelists. Human evangelists. They went everywhere telling people what they had seen and heard. And in contrast, in stark contrast, Luke doesn't leave out an important fact. We started with Mary. Let's end with Mary. Because in verse 19, Luke says, But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. She's not reacting. She's not writing a book. She's not trying to get on the social calendar to give talks. She's pondering these things in her heart. Privately. What must have been the deep musings of her racing mind as she struggles to sort through an attempt to understand all the marvelous experiences she's had over the past year, beginning with an angel showing up named Gabriel, to all of a sudden this crowd of shepherds <laughs> piling into the stable and said, you just won't believe what we saw. She must have been wondering what lies ahead for her, this special little boy, her family, and even her world. I think Mark Lowry, singer and songwriter, tried to capture some of that inward struggle as he was writing a song about Mary and her thoughts about that. Suggesting that how could she even imagine that this little baby that she just delivered, her firstborn, would one day deliver her? <sighs> How is it possible that this tiny little infant is the very creator of all of creation, including herself, that he would one day walk upon the waters? That one day he would speak a word and calm the raging storm? That he would have the power by a spoken word to heal the blind to give the lame the ability to walk again, to raise the dead, to cast out demons. Just imagine as this young woman with her firstborn swaddling wrapped baby 
and she kisses the face of her baby, she's kissing the face of God. What a marvelous story God tells in making it known to us that He's got a plan. A plan to redeem lost, wayward sinners to holy, righteous God that we might have eternal life in heaven with Him one day. So I ask you, you've heard the story. This is not the first time, I'm sure, you've heard the story. My question to you is what have you done with it? Are you one of those who has resolutely determined in your heart that this Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Savior of the world, and I am going to deny myself and I'm going to take up whatever cross I need to to follow Him daily and have the assurance of eternal life in heaven with Him one day? Or are you one of those who hear this story and you marvel for a little bit but then comes New Year's and life as usual. Only you can decide. We have a theme song and our production team has the words on the screen or will. You see, the theme of my Gospel of Luke exposition is follow me. Because that's what Jesus said as he went about revealing the truth of God and the kingdom of God, he issued a challenge to everyone. Come, follow me. Have you made that decision? Nothing can make the meaning of Christmas real and authentic in your life than having knowledge that you have made that decision to deny yourself daily, take up your cross, and follow him.